This week, my favorite papers of 2015. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Rounds Table, a weekly podcast about major new research in medicine hosted online at Healthy Debate. My name is Amol Verma. I'm a resident in general internal medicine at the University of Toronto. And today I am all alone, not in like the sad, depressing kind of way, but in the way that prompts uh, some reflection. And since this is the beginning of a new year, we decided to add on to the massive heap of year-end lists and bring to you my favorite papers of 2015. So this is deliberately worded as my, as in only one humble resident's opinion and favorite, not best, uh, because these are the papers that caught my eye. And specifically, I'm looking this week at papers that I think are most relevant for internists in a somewhat uh, self-interested manner. And so a lot of other really great papers um, I have left off this list. As with any list, this will be incomplete and imperfect, but I've picked 10 papers I'm really curious to hear whether there's anything you would uh, change. So let me know. You can uh, send me a message on Twitter at Amol A. Verma or at Rounds Table and uh, let us know what you think. So I've classified these papers into three categories. One is hypothesis generating. So I'll talk about four papers that I think are interesting, important, and hypothesis generating. Five papers that are practice changing. And the third category is practice affirming, and there is only one lonely paper in that category. Almost all of these we have covered before, so we're going to go through them fairly quickly. And basically, I'm going to give you the highlights of the study and a little bit of context. So let's dive right in. So we'll start with the category of hypothesis generating papers. So the first hypothesis generating paper I want to talk about is the discovery of a new antibiotic, Taxobactin, which was a paper published by Ling and colleagues in the journal Nature at the beginning of 2015. So these authors discovered a new class of cell wall inhibitor. It's a groundbreaking new antibiotic discovery. The context here is obvious in that multi-drug resistance is becoming an increasingly important and for some people, terrifying uh, public health problem. In fact, we recently heard about a scary new development in antibiotic resistance, which was the emergence of plasmid-mediated resistance to colistin, uh, which is called MCR1 in uh, animals and human beings in China, as reported in the Lancet Infectious Diseases. And this... Uh, received a lot of media attention in the last couple of weeks. So this paper is particularly relevant. One of the really interesting facts about antibiotic drug discovery, which I was unaware of until I had read this paper, is that most antibiotics are discovered from or have been discovered from soil microorganisms. But it's very difficult to grow soil microorganisms in laboratory environments. Interestingly, 99% of bacteria species that grow in external environments could not be grown in a laboratory environment. And so one of the really groundbreaking discoveries of these authors was to develop a new method, which they called the iChip, 
of growing soil-based organisms in laboratory environments. Effectively, what they did was they developed a chip that has millions of what they call channels. Each one can only hold one bacterial cell. So the researchers dilute the soil down and then place diluted soil on the chip so that within each chip cell, there is one bacterial cell. They then cover the chip with two semi-permeable membranes and put it back into soil so that it can grow in the complex and nutrient-rich environment of the soil. And through this mechanism, they are able to now culture almost 50% of soil organisms. And this therefore leads to our ability to maybe isolate a variety of other new antibiotic compounds. So using this method, they isolated this new compound, which they've called taxobactin, which is a potent cell wall inhibitor that has shown to have very good activity against gram-positive organisms, staph species, strep species, C. difficile, anthrax, and encouragingly, it has very good activity against methicillin-resistant staph aureus, and even some of the isolates that have resistance to vancomycin, which is the current first line of treatment for MRSA. So this is a very exciting discovery that hopefully will lead to the discovery of many new antibiotics and allow us to respond to the emergence of new antimicrobial resistance. A couple of uh, limitations around this study. So the first is that so far this drug has only been used in mice and shown to be effective. So its safety and effectiveness in humans has yet to be established. And the second caveat to this discovery is that most of the really concerning resistance patterns that we're seeing are prevalent in gram-negative organisms. And this antibiotic is targeted towards gram-positive organisms. So it's not yet a uh, a brand new panacea that we're looking for, but hopefully the combination of this new drug as well as this new method of cultivating soil microorganisms will open the door to a new era in antibiotic drug discovery. The next hypothesis generating study I want to talk about is a paper about the safety of digoxin in patients with atrial fibrillation published by Washam and colleagues in The Lancet. So this was a retrospective analysis of the Rocket AF randomized control trial, which to remind you was a phase three randomized control trial of rivaroxaban versus warfarin for stroke prevention in atrial fibrillation. Digoxin is recommended by cardiology guidelines for heart rate control in patients with reduced left ventricular function. The paper this year was the new largest analysis to date of digoxin use and outcomes in atrial fibrillation patients. Because, of course, digoxin is used a lot for heart rate control in atrial fibrillation, and yet there's fairly limited evidence on cardiac outcomes in atrial fibrillation patients. So the Rocket AF study had about 14,000 patients with atrial fibrillation, the patients were on average 73 years old, 40% women, 80% white, and had an average CHAD score of 3, so intermediate risk for stroke. 
37% of the patients were on digoxin at the time of randomization. What they found was that the digoxin group of patients were qualitatively different from the patients who were not on digoxin, which is not surprising. So they were more likely to have heart failure. They were more likely to have diabetes. They were more likely to have persistent atrial fibrillation, and they were more likely to have a higher baseline heart rate. In contrast, the patients who were not on digoxin were more likely to have previous strokes. They found when they compared groups that the use of digoxin was associated with increased all-cause mortality. In the digoxin group, the all-cause mortality was just over five events per 100 patient years, whereas in the non-digoxin group, all-cause mortality was just over four events per 100 patient year. And this was an annual number needed to harm of about 100. They also found increased vascular death and increased sudden death. So this raises a really important question about whether or not it's safe to be using digoxin in patients with atrial fibrillation. This is in the hypothesis generating category of research because this is a retrospective analysis of a randomized control trial that was not designed to look at this question. And really this raises the point that probably a large, well-powered, well-designed, well-conducted randomized control trial should be done to look at digoxin use in patients with atrial fibrillation. And in the meantime, clinicians should exercise caution in using digoxin, which I think we already do. I think we all know that, especially in older patients, it can be a harmful medication. Okay, the next paper that caught my eye was called the CAPSTART study, published by Postma and colleagues in the New England Journal of Medicine. And this was about antibiotic treatment strategies for community-acquired pneumonia in adults. This was a cluster randomized trial in seven Dutch hospitals. They randomized just under 2,300 patients who were hospitalized with community-acquired pneumonia but did not require intensive care. And they randomized them to three different antibiotic strategies. One was a beta-lactam alone. The second was a beta-lactam plus a macrolide. And the third was a fluoroquinolone. These patients had a median age of 70 years, had a median length of stay of six days in hospital, and the researchers found that the 90-day mortality between these three groups was not statistically significantly different. So in fact, this was a, a non-inferiority study, and basically they found that the beta-lactam alone was non-inferior to the, to the other two groups. The 90-day mortality was 9% in the beta-lactam group, 11% in the beta-lactam macrolide group, and 8.8% in the fluoroquinolone group. The author's major conclusion from the study was that macrolides are not necessary for the treatment of community-acquired pneumonia requiring hospitalization, but not intensive care. One of the key limitations of this study is about 25% of the patients had a deviation from the initial antibiotic treatment strategy at some point. In about 8% of the patients in the study, antimicrobial coverage was changed because of a clinical desire to cover atypical pathogens. So basically, in the beta-lactam group, either a macrolide or a fluoroquinolone was added. So this needs to be interpreted as a treatment strategy design, recognizing that sometimes clinical judgment required deviation from the initial treatment strategy. But it poses the important question of 
whether indeed macrolides are required and atypical coverage is required for the treatment of pneumonia that does not require intensive care. The reason I've placed this in the hypothesis generating category is because of local resistance patterns and the importance of relying on uh, local experts to make uh, these decisions. In uh, Toronto, where I work, often uh, the use of a beta-lactam, beta-lactamase inhibitor without atypical coverage uh, is being used as a first-line therapy for pneumonia. Okay, the last paper I have in the hypothesis-generating category uh, is also about pneumonia, and I deliberately have this sort of straddling the hypothesis-generating and practice-changing categories. And this is, of course, the ever-controversial topic of corticosteroid therapy for patients hospitalized with community-acquired pneumonia. And this is a systematic review and meta-analysis published by Semenyuk and colleagues in the Annals of Internal Medicine. Actually, I think of all of the papers we're talking about today, this is the one that we did not cover in full on our usual weekly podcasts. Although we did cover a large randomized control trial on this same topic. So Semenyuk and colleagues set out to study the use of adjunctive corticosteroids for community-acquired pneumonia. They searched the Cochrane Central Register for Controlled Trials, Embase, and Medline from 2010 to 2015 for relevant studies, and they ultimately included 13 trials with just over 2,000 patients. Most patients were in their 60s, and most of the patients were men. There was a lot of heterogeneity amongst the trials in terms of the various preparations of steroids that were used, the dose, and the duration of steroids. Most of the studies that were included in this meta-analysis excluded patients who were at high risk of having complications from the steroids, specifically patients who had GI bleeding within the last three months, patients who were immunosuppressed, or patients who were pregnant. So Semenyuk and colleagues looked at several different outcomes. I want to talk about four of them. So they looked at mortality. 12 of the studies totaling just under 2,000 patients reported on mortality. They found a relative risk of mortality of 0.67, which was not quite statistically significant. The absolute risk difference was about just under 3%. It was 2.8%. And so the authors of this meta-analysis have reported this as a possible trend towards mortality benefit. This may be a subgroup effect. Most of the mortality benefit was seen in studies of severe pneumonia, but this is likely an overestimate of effect size overall. And may even, in fact, be be spurious because it wasn't a consistent benefit that was seen across all of the studies. The most important benefit was seen in the need for mechanical ventilation. So five studies with over a 1,000 patients reported on the need for mechanical ventilation. And they found that there was an absolute difference in the need for mechanical ventilation by 5% in the steroid treatment groups. There was also a 6% absolute reduction in the number of patients who had acute respiratory distress syndrome, or ARDS. The other important outcome that they reported on is length of stay. 
six studies with just under 1,500 patients reported on length of stay, and the average reduction in length of stay was one day in hospital. When looking at safety outcomes, the major safety outcome uh, that was affected by corticosteroids was hyperglycemia, which was reported in six studies, 1,500 patients, and they found an absolute increase in 6% of patients requiring treatment for hyperglycemia. But those differences did not persist on longer-term follow-up. There was also no effect on GI bleeding, on neuropsychiatric disturbance, or on uh, readmission to hospital. And here I'll remind you that one of the major inclusion, exclusion criteria for these studies was a history of recent GI bleeding. And also comment the, on the fact that the confidence intervals around the estimates for GI bleeding as well as neuropsychiatric complications uh, were very wide, suggesting imprecision in the estimate of the effects. Okay, so the overall conclusion though from this systematic review and meta-analysis is that after a number of studies, more than 10 studies, in between 1,000 and 2,000 patients, depending on the outcome you're looking at, the use of steroids for community-acquired pneumonia requiring hospitalization is associated with approximately one day reduction in length of stay and about 5% reduction in the need for mechanical ventilation. I have to say that this finding and all of the conversation that happened around steroids and pneumonia, certainly in the clinical circles that I travel in, um, has been met with, shall we say, enthusiastic ambivalence, which is basically that some people seem to be excited about it, and a lot of people are actually not yet convinced. I have to say I find it a little bit puzzling that people are not convinced. There have been several now randomized control trials that seem to be showing these consistent effects. Uh, but indeed, people are not convinced. They're still concerned about some of the side effects of steroids. And so there are several randomized control trials underway, one in France and one in the United States, uh, where researchers are trying to uh, look at this very question and get at some of the more granular questions around the dose of uh, the steroid and the duration of treatment. Uh, and those are set to come out in the next couple of years. So until then, this set of body of evidence, I think, still sits in the space between hypothesis generating and practice changing, depending upon how much of an early adopter you are as a clinician. Okay, now let's change gears and move to our more obviously practice changing papers from 2015. So the first one I want to talk about is the REVERT study, which was postural modification to the standard Valsalva maneuver for emergency treatment of supraventricular tachycardias published by Applebaum and colleagues in The Lancet. So this was a randomized control trial of 433 patients who had supraventricular tachycardia in the emergency departments in England, excluding patients with atrial fibrillation and atrial flutter. These researchers randomized patients either to a standard Valsalva maneuver, which was 15 seconds of bearing down at a pressure of 40 millimeters of mercury, versus the standard Valsalva maneuver plus supine repositioning and a passive leg raise. And they found a dramatic improvement in the number of patients who achieved sinus rhythm after these modified maneuvers, 
17% in the standard group achieved sinus rhythm, whereas 43% in the modified group achieved sinus rhythm. The maneuvers are really easy. If you don't have a manometer that you can have a patient blow into, the authors suggest getting a simple syringe, asking the patient to blow into the syringe and bear down for 15 seconds, and then laying the patient supine and passively raising their legs. Uh, there's a great video on the Lancet website, which you can access through our website at Healthy Debate. Uh, and this seems like a safe and possibly very effective approach to treating SVT that uh, hopefully we should all be trying and seeing if it's effective uh, in our practices. The next paper that I want to talk about is about alcoholic hepatitis. This was the STOP-AH trial published by Thurse and all in the New England Journal of Medicine, examining the use of prednisolone or pentoxyphylline for alcoholic hepatitis. This was a double-blind, placebo-controlled, randomized controlled trial of 1,103 patients in 65 hospitals in the United Kingdom. Patients were included who had alcoholic hepatitis and were categorized as severe using the MADRI score. Patients were randomized to 28 days of prednisone, 28 days of pentoxyphylline, or both. In this study, 16% of patients died at 28 days, and the authors found that pentoxyphylline did not reduce death. Prednisolone may have reduced death. The odds ratio was 0.72 and the p-value was 0.06, so just missing the cutoff for statistical significance. They found that the patients that were treated with prednisolone had increased rates of infection, 13% as opposed to 7%, which was a statistically significant increase in infection. And they found that there was no effect on survival or transplant at 90 days or one year. There are a couple limitations to this study. One is that the study was initially powered to detect 30% mortality rates, and they ended up only finding 16% mortality rates, so about half the number of events that they had expected. And in that regard, it was underpowered. Probably the other major limitation of this study is that the average time from admission to randomization was between six and seven days, which seems like a long time. I wonder if probably the, the major reason for this delay is that patients may have presented with an undifferentiated hepatitis that required investigations to rule out viral hepatitis, for example. And so only after you know several days of investigations could they determine that this was indeed purely alcoholic hepatitis and then start the patients on treatment. My takeaways from this study is that pentoxyphylline does not appear to be helpful in severe alcoholic hepatitis. And so I personally will not be using it in my clinical practice. Uh, and prednisolone is probably not helpful, certainly if you're starting it you know, several days after the patient has presented to hospital. Uh, and if it is helpful, it comes with the risk of increased infection. Okay, the third study I want to talk about in this category of practice-changing articles is more of a, a topic than a single study, and that is the topic of intra-arterial treatment for stroke. Two of the high-profile studies in this area were the ESCAPE trial and the Mr. Clean trial. So this was really a breakthrough year for neurointerventional management of stroke. So intra-arterial treatment of stroke involves local administration of thrombolytic therapy, as well as clot retrieval with retrievable stents. 
prior to this set of papers, there was a series of previous negative trials for neurointerventional treatment of stroke. And the key differences between this set of studies and the previous set of studies is that the newer studies have very specific inclusion criteria, which are based on imaging features. They use newer mechanical devices, which can be retrieved and have had some technological improvements. And they permit a longer time interval between the onset of symptoms and the neurointerventional treatment, which allows for more careful selection of patients. For example, patients who have a really good initial response to systemic thrombolytic therapy could be excluded from neurointerventional treatments. Okay, so both ESCAPE and Mr. Clean compared usual care, which is basically systemic thrombolytic therapy, with usual care plus the addition of interventional treatment. Mr. Clean included patients who had an occlusion of the major intracranial vessels, so the MCA, the ACA, as well as some distal cerebral arteries, and a score of two or more on the NIH stroke scale, so at least some moderate deficits, required initiation of therapy within six hours of symptom onset. They studied 500 patients at 16 Dutch centers. The intra-arterial intervention increased the number of patients who were functionally independent at 90 days after their stroke from 19% to 33%. That's an absolute difference of 14% and a number needed to treat of 7. They found no difference in adverse events at 90 days, although they did note that in the intervention group, 5% of the patients had a new stroke at 90 days as opposed to just 0.4% of the patients in the standard care group. There were a number of procedural complications, including embolization in 8% of patients, dissection in 2% of patients, and perforation in 1% of patients. But even taking all of that into account, there was no significant difference in adverse events at 90 days, and this pretty dramatic improvement in functional independence. The ESCAPE study included patients who had proximal intracranial anterior circulation occlusion, so basically any of the major anterior intracranial vessels. They included patients up to 12 hours after symptom onset. They excluded patients who had very large infarcts or who had poor collateral circulation on imaging. So again, really heavily focused on imaging criteria for enrollment. They studied 316 patients at 22 centers, and they found that at 90 days in the treatment group, Functional independence, again, was much improved in the intervention group, 53% versus 29% in the non-intervention group. They also found a mortality difference. In the intervention group, mortality was 10.4%, whereas it was 19% in the standard care group. So to summarize, our very exciting era of research and practice in the treatment of stroke suggests that neurointerventional treatments for the right patients can have very dramatic improvements in both functional independence and also mortality, and this is absolutely practice-changing. Okay, the next study I want to talk about is the EMPA-REG outcome study published by Zinman and colleagues in the New England Journal of Medicine. This was a study of empagliflozin and cardiovascular outcomes and mortality in type 2 diabetes. 
So many studies, tens of thousands of patients with type 2 diabetes have been conducted. And really, prior to this study, there was no convincing evidence that glucose lowering reduces cardiovascular events or death. Uh, at best, the literature suggests a modest benefit after prolonged follow-up. And we know that it does have a benefit at reducing microvascular complications, so neuropathy, retinopathy, etc. Ampagliflozin is an inhibitor of sodium glucose co-transporter 2, which acts at the kidneys to reduce glucose reabsorption and thus improve the excretion of glucose from the body. This is a unique category of glucose-lowering agents because it is the only class of drugs that actually removes glucose from the body. Pretty much all of the other antihyperglycemic drugs either increase insulin secretion or increase insulin sensitivity in some way to improve the body's processing of glucose. This is the first drug that actually removes glucose from the body. So this was a double-blind randomized controlled trial in patients with type 2 diabetes. The patients also had to have a BMI of less than 45 and a glomerular filtration rate of greater than 30, so they had to have reasonable renal function. And importantly, these were patients who had high cardiac risk. They had to have a history of prior heart attack, stroke, peripheral vascular disease, or coronary artery disease on angiogram. These patients also had to have stable glucose control. So they needed to have an A1C that was stable between 7 and 9 on no medications or between 7 and 10 on medication. So 7,000 patients, just over 7,000 patients, were randomized to either empagliflozin or placebo. And the primary outcome was a composite of death from cardiovascular causes, non-fatal MI, or non-fatal stroke. And here's what they found. So the median treatment time was two and a half years the average age of patients was 63 years. They were 72% male, 72% white, and they had an average hemoglobin A1C of 8%. 80% of the patients were on a statin. 95% of the patients were on antihypertensive therapy. And in terms of other diabetes medications, this is really interesting. So about 75% of the patients were already on metformin. Almost 50% were already on insulin. So that's really interesting in the sense that we often dichotomize uh, treatment for type 2 diabetes between insulin requiring and non-insulin requiring. Uh, and this really speaks to the fact that this drug may be beneficial even for patients who are already on insulin. In the treatment group, 10.5% of the patients had that composite primary outcome of death from cardiac causes, non-fatal MI or non-fatal stroke. And in the placebo group, it was 12.1%. This difference was driven by death from cardiovascular causes. So there was a statistically significant reduction in death from cardiovascular causes. In the treatment group, death was 3.7%. And in the placebo group, it was 5.9%. This is a number needed to treat of 45. If we look at death from any cause, there was a number needed to treat of 38. So to summarize, empagliflozin was associated with reduced death from cardiovascular causes, reduced death from any cause, and also uh, reduction in the composite primary endpoint. Now, the really interesting thing about the mortality difference in this study is that 
it emerged very quickly. Somewhere between three and six months, we saw that uh, mortality difference separate between the groups, and then the groups stayed separated for the duration of the study. This raises the really fascinating question of why was there a mortality benefit? It's hard to invoke a mechanism of glucose lowering and long-term effects on atherosclerosis uh, when the difference happened in only three months. And so many people wonder if it was the diuretic effect of the drug. There are, is also a lot of theories about its pleiotropic effect. So uh, it's been shown to have an effect on arterial stiffness, heart function, cardiorenal effects, reduced levels of uric acid, reduced blood pressure, in addition to its glucose lowering effects. So the bottom line is we really don't know why it was such an effective medication, but the study shows that it is. In terms of safety, there was not an increased risk of urinary tract infections in the treatment group. However, there was a, sl a slight increase in the number of patients who had urosepsis, so patients who became really ill from their urinary tract infection. In the treatment group, it was 0.4% as opposed to 0.1% in the placebo control group. I'll make one editorial comment here, which is that one of the complications associated with the SGLT2 inhibitors like empagliflozin and canagliflozin that has now emerged in clinical practice is the association of these medications with DKA, even in patients with type 2 diabetes. So that's just a, a point for all you clinicians out there. If you see patients on these medications, uh, be wary that they have been associated with diabetic ketoacidosis, and specifically with euglycemic diabetic ketoacidosis, because these are such effective glucose-lowering medications, sometimes they cause a normal blood glucose level, which can mask the fact that the patient is actually still in DKA. And now to the last study that I want to talk about in our practice changing articles segment. And I wonder if you can guess what it is. That's right, it's the SPRINT trial, a randomized trial of intensive versus standardized blood pressure control. So this was a randomized treatment strategy trial that addressed what was described as the most important question in hypertension management, which is what should our blood pressure target be? This was a study of 9,300 patients who had a blood pressure of greater than 130 and increased cardiac risk. Increased cardiac risk was defined as the presence of clinical or subclinical cardiovascular disease, chronic kidney disease, an elevated Framingham risk score of greater than 15%, or age greater than 75. Importantly, patients with diabetes were excluded from this trial, and patients with prior strokes were excluded from this trial. Patients were randomized to a target of less than 120 or a target of less than 140. On average, the patients were 68 years old, and 28% of the patients were over the age of 75. The average baseline blood pressure of patients was 140 over 78. Most patients, the average patient was on just about two antihypertensives. The primary composite outcome was a composite of MI or other acute coronary syndrome, stroke, heart failure, or cardiovascular death. They found that they were able to achieve 
a good separation between the treatment strategy groups in blood pressure that was achieved. So the mean blood pressure in the intensive treatment group was 121, whereas the mean blood pressure in the standard care group was 136. And as you probably know, if you listen to this podcast or follow the medical news, the trial was stopped early after a median follow-up of just over three years uh, because of benefit. They found a reduction in the primary outcome. In the intensive treatment group, the composite primary outcome occurred in 1.65% of patients as opposed to 2.19% of patients in the standard care group. This amounts to a number needed to treat of 61 patients to prevent one of those composite outcomes. They found a reduction in death from any cause with a number needed to treat of 90 and death from cardiac causes with a number needed to treat of 172. There was an increase in adverse events for specific adverse events. So the intensive treatment was associated with more hypotension, was associated with more syncope, it was associated with more electrolyte abnormalities, it was not associated with more injurious falls and it was associated with more acute kidney injury. And so this leaves us to question several things. The first is, do we believe this result? And the answer, I think that most of the medical community has settled on is yes. Although the trial was open label and although the trial was stopped early, there's a pretty impressive effect size between the groups. Uh, And so people do seem to think that more intensive blood pressure lowering for this select group of patients who are at increased cardiac risk seems to have benefit. The next question is, is it safe to be treating people more intensively? And the answer is probably yes, but there will be an increase in complications. There were an increase in hypotension and electrolyte abnormalities. And so this type of intensive therapy should really only be instituted in patients who are reliable, follow up regularly, and can be monitored closely. Okay, so that completes our section of five practice changing studies. And this brings us to my final favorite paper of uh, 2015, which I have categorized as practice affirming. And this was the BRIDGE trial about perioperative bridging anticoagulation published by Duquettes and colleagues in the New England Journal of Medicine. So this was a double-blind placebo-controlled randomized control trial of bridging anticoagulation with low molecular weight heparin versus placebo for patients with atrial fibrillation. 1,800 patients were enrolled uh, before a procedure requiring interruption of anticoagulation. And they found that in the group that was randomized to bridging, the rate of arterial thrombosis was 0.3%. In the group that was randomized to no bridging, the rate of arterial thrombosis was 0.4%. And so the no bridging strategy was found to be non-inferior to the bridging strategy. They also found that there was a statistically significant increase in the amount of patients who had bleeding when they were bridged with anticoagulation, which is not surprising. So 3% of patients had bleeding as opposed to 1% of patients uh, who were not bridged. A couple of points about this trial. The patients included in this trial were on average 72 years old, 
73% male. They had a mean Chad score of 2.1. Importantly, 85% of the patients had a Chad score between 1 and 3, and less than 3% of the patients had a Chad score in the high risk category of 5 or 6. So that affects our ability to generalize these results. The other important caveat about this trial is that 90% of these procedures were minor, things like endoscopy uh, or day surgeries, and had low bleeding risk. So what does this trial tell us? Basically, I believe it confirms our current practice. It tells us that people who have a CHAD score of three or less do not do better with a bridging strategy. And probably also with that intermediate range, so CHADs 3 and 4, uh, there were about 15% of the patients in this trial had a CHAD score of 4. So we can be more confident telling people in that intermediate risk category that they probably don't need to be bridged with anticoagulation. And the jury is still out on people who are high risk with a CHAD score of 5 or 6. And so the, in practice, most clinicians would continue to bridge those patients perioperatively. Okay, so that ends our whirlwind tour of my favorite papers of 2015 for internists. I hope the summary was helpful for you, and I'm curious to hear if you agree or disagree with any of my uh, opinions on the, on the topics. Next week, we'll be back to you with uh, brand new content, and we're excited to have a new season of The Rounds Table. And wishing you all all the very best for 2016. We'll talk to you soon.